the sexual revolution lied to us, promising liberation, satisfaction, and happiness. It has only delivered pain, confusion, and destruction. Author Louise Perry argues from a secular feminist perspective that abandoning Christian regulations on marriage and sex has gotten us here. And she's got some fascinating advice on how we can recover from the brokenness caused by sexual liberalism. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Good Ranchers. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Allie. Louise, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get started, can you tell us who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm Louise Perry. I'm a journalist and author based in London, UK. And you wrote a book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Before we get into the content of the book, can you first just set us up? Why did you write it? I mean, it's kind of a decade's work, um, even though I wrote it pretty quickly. Um, I wrote it basically between um, learning I was pregnant with my son and him being six months old, which mm-hmm. wasn't very clever. I can <laughs> anyone listening who's considering writing a book at the same time as having a baby, I would advise against it. But yes. um, this was so. I mean, my first job out of university was working in a rape crisis centre. And I've um, since worked as a campaigner on sexual violence and the law. And a lot of my journalism has been focused around this topic in all sorts of different ways. So it was something I've been thinking about for a really long time um, and having a lot of conversations with young women, all of whom are saying the same things. You know, there is something deeply, deeply wrong with our sexual culture um, and the, the standard narratives available to us the progressive narrative about the sexual revolution, which says that this was all f- for women's sake, you know, that it was it was all about maximising our freedom and that we should be grateful for it. I think actually if you look at how young women are actually experiencing the post-sexual revolution era, I just don't think it stacks up at all. So this book is a, it's an interrogation of that, na- of that narrative. Tell us what the sexual revolution is. How would you define it? So it's sort of, I think it's sort of two things. One is the the material aspect of it, the fact that you have the pill arriving in the ends of the 1950s into the 1960s and just completely transforming um, sex and the, the link with reproduction, right? For the first time in the history of the world, it suddenly becomes possible for women to suspend their fertility in a way that they can control and that is kind of invisible right and and it's that important that we call it the pill with capital letters you know everyone knows what you're talking about when you're talking about the pill because of its incredible importance it's not the only material change that brings us here but i think it is the most the most significant one and it's where i date the beginning of the sexual revolution um but then there's also all of the ideological stuff that comes along with that as well because this is coming out of the 1960s and the sort of <clears throat> excuse me ferment of the post-second world war era and you've got this really strong push to s- sort of tear down everything that's come before and to question everything that's come before and there's this real kind of um anti-establishment urge which also applies to sexuality and you know what we've basically been left with um post-sexual revolution is that all of the old sexual norms are now suspect um particularly um anything associated with 
with religion. I mean, this is this really should be understood. The whole of the post-60s era really needs to be understood as a reaction against Christianity, right? It's, it's a kind of a second reformation in that sense. Mm. Um, and what's the only principle that's left standing is the principle of consent, right? right? As long as as long as everyone is capable of consenting and they and they enthusiastically consent that everything's fine, everything is on the table, you know. Yeah. Um, and my argument is that actually the consent framework doesn't work. It is completely pitiful, yeah. right, as a means of actually trying to regulate um, relationships between men and women, which are far more complex and difficult and high stakes than yes. the consent framework permits. Yes, we've talked about that before. When consent is your only determinant of what is virtuous and what is not, then as you said, a lot of things that are actually immoral and exploitative are on mm -hmm. the table. Um, mm. Consent is a part of determining what is good and what is not, what is acceptable and what is not, but it's really the bare minimum. It is not yeah. the only standard. And that's how you kind of get these maxims of the sexual revolution or what I would call maxims of the sexual revolution, which is sex work is work, or there's such a thing as ethical pornography or who cares if these women are singing about these things, doing these things, if they're objectifying themselves, it's okay because they are consenting to that objectification. Tell us a little bit more about the consequences of this consent as the only standard of decency culture that the sexual revolution has created. The term that I use in the book is um, sexual disenchantment. The idea that sex used to have some sort of special status, some actual like sacred status, right? In in not just in Christianity, in all all religious traditions have some kind of um, sacredness surrounding sex and, and rules about when you can do it and with who and so forth. Um, but what se what sexual disenchantment as an idea does is it says that actually no sex needn't be any more significant than any other kind of social interaction. It can be completely morally neutral. If people want to invest meaning in it, they can, but they don't have to. It can just be like shaking hands or, or whatever right. other kind of neutral thing you want to imagine, which means, of course, that you can buy it, you can sell it, um, you can uh, objectify yourself as much as you like. That's fine. Um, the problem with sexual disenchantment, I mean, there are two problems with it. One is that... If you really are serious about saying that sex is no different from other other kinds of social interaction, then you can't continue to have special status for rape, for right, instance, exactly. right, or for yeah. sexual harassment, or for any of these things, right. which we know viscerally feel deeply different from, say, theft. And the law recognises that, and all of our social institutions recognise that. But if you really want to say that sex actually doesn't have any special status, then how can you possibly argue that rape should have a special status? And this is, I think, the problem with sexual disenchantment, that if you follow it through to its logical conclusions, it actually has horrible, horrible outcomes, which is why basically no one does. Like No one actually lives as if sexual disenchantment was true. People might say that they do, and they might rhetorically kind of appeal to it, what so you get phrases like, as you say, sex workers work, which is um, designed to kind of challenge us to say, but what is different about sex? You know, when it comes down to it, isn't isn't it just like working at McDonald's? Isn't it just like selling other any other kind of labor? And the problem you get down to in those arguments is that the differentness of sex, the specialness of sex is quite hard to articulate. It's not something that can easily be packaged up in a sort of rational argument because it's 
it's not really to do with rationality. It's to do with emotion, feeling and the kind of gut level response that we have as human beings to sexual interaction. And I think particularly for women, I mean, one of the one of the the um, ways that men and women differ on average in terms of sexuality, there are all sorts of them, but but one which is interesting and important is that women have a much lower sexual disgust threshold than men, which is one of those things that you can measure quite objectively by things like sweating and heart rate and things like that. Well, like when we feel disgusted, we we have all these involuntary physical responses which you can which you can test for, and women's threshold for feeling sexual disgust is a lot lower than men's we get what is called colloquially getting the ick mm. when you like really just kind of feel horribly repulsed yeah, and, and I think yeah yeah and particularly I think when it's associated with any kind of like sexual aggression there's that fear combined with disgust which I don't think there's a word for I, I mentioned in the book that I've every woman I've spoken to says I I completely understand that that feeling I know it you feel it like in your bones it's yeah. that strong right but there isn't there isn't a word for it um, and it's something that men are much less likely to to experience. And it all comes down to the fact that, you know, one, the fact that women are just physically vulnerable in a way that men aren't because we're smaller and we're weaker than men are. Um, but also that we're evolved to have quite different kinds of sexuality and quite different responses to things like choosing partners. You know, the nature of getting pregnant is that... Um, Sex is hugely consequential for women, potentially, because you've got a long pregnancy, you've got dangerous labour, you've got many, many years of, of, of childcare. That, that's really important. That matters, right? It, it's no wonder we're evolved to be picky about who we want to have sex with, because that's, those are the potential consequences. You don't want to be choosing the wrong man. He's not going to stick around or whatever. Whereas in theory, men can, have, men can reproduce every time they have sex with basically no like physical risk to themselves which means which doesn't mean that men like are always focused on just having as many partners as possible not at all like male sexuality is very flexible i talk in the book about cad and dad mode so dad mode is obviously all focused towards um marriage and family and stability and really like investing in your in in your in your genetic line right whereas cad mode is all about sowing your wild oats Mm -hmm. um that's a phrase that's used in America. <laughs> yes, um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't say cat um, as much, but I think that we know what you mean. So when you're wild, it's definitely <laughs> familiar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and men can, you know, some men are more drawn to one sort of mode than the other, but most men are capable of both. Mm. And it's about, and it depends on context and it depends on incentives and what kind of social structures are in place to to, to motivate men to behave in one or other ways. And I think what's happened post-sexual revolution, that we've we've got rid of so many of the structures that used to exist to regulate sexual relationships, which were oppressive, right, in a sense. In, I mean, this is often the, the argument, the feminist argument that's made against marriage, is that marriage oppresses women, to which I say, yeah, it does, but, you know, it oppresses men as well. <laughs> and it also protects the interests of women and it also protects the interests of men the whole point of marriage is that it is a restriction you know you stand up in front of everyone and you and you promise to be with this person forever and to be faithful to them and to and to support them financially emotionally socially everything and you sign a piece of paper to that effect which places restrictions on your behavior yeah on both of you that's the point but it also means that you it provides a stable basis 
to yeah. form your life together and to have children together. And if you're if you're tearing down those kind of institutions that are in place to encourage men into dad mode, essentially, we shouldn't be surprised to discover that actually, like male sexual misbehaviour is 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 so much so much easier and so much less punished now. Yeah. Without those structures in place, because as you as you're saying, consent just isn't enough. There is so much terrible behaviour which yeah. jumps over that very very low bar, the consent bar. Okay, quick break to tell you guys some good news and some bad news. I'll start with the bad news first. All the multivitamins that you're taking that you think are working well for your body, unfortunately, your body probably isn't absorbing the nutrients that you need. Because if you're taking those traditional tablets and capsules, they're filled with all kinds of artificial flavors and fillers that just make it difficult for your body to actually absorb what you need. And that is why Healthy Cell is a new kind of dietary supplement, a new kind of multivitamin. They use a technology that is a ingestible gel. So that has 165% more absorption than pills. They have all different kinds of multivitamins. If you're looking for uh, some prenatal support, or if you're looking for a multivitamin that can help you sleep better at night, they've got you covered. It tastes great. All natural ingredients. Check it out by going to healthycell.com slash Allie. That's healthycell.com slash Allie. Use code Allie for 20% off your first order. That's healthycell.com slash Allie, code Allie. Gosh, I have so much to say and so many thoughts based on what you just said. <laughs> Starting at the end, talking about marriage being oppressive. What you mean when you say marriage is oppressive is kind of what you explained, that it's oppressive in the sense that it is restrictive. It is, mm-hmm. um, it's supposed to be a structure that inhibits you from engaging in mm-hmm. certain kinds of behavior and stops you from doing some things that you may want to do, but mm-hmm. are unhealthy, both for the relationship, for your kids, also for society in general. I would probably say that it is more than like repressive than oppressive. I guess when I think of oppressive, I think of unjustly holding someone down, whereas repressive might just be holding something back for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. I would say that uh, marriage, uh, you know, the institution of marriage anyway, is repressive in a healthy way that yes, it is holding people back as you explained so well from things that are not supposed to be acceptable in the bounds of marriage. Now, what I'm interested to hear, are, are you um, are you religious? Do you consider yourself religious? No, I'm coming at this from a kind of secular perspective. Right. I mean, I'm I'm religious in the sense that I um, I think actually all of us are. Um, I think that Christian morality is actually deeply, deeply baked in to Western societies. Right, like two thousand years of Christian tradition didn't end suddenly in the 1960s. So I think that a lot of what I'm writing about in the book, and I think one of the reasons that the book has appealed to a Christian audience as well as a secular audience, are Christian virtues, which are universally recognised, even if they're not acknowledged as being Christian, if that makes sense. So things like defence of the weak, humility, um, these are not actually universal virtues, right? And yeah. they certainly weren't considered so in the first century Roman world, right? 
these are these are Christian virtues, which I think still resonate. Yes. Um, which is a complicated way of saying sort of. Yes. So <laughs> this is your question. Yes. And this is a I mean, I'm a Christian, this is a Christian podcast, and that is part of why this is so interesting. And one thing that you said that really struck me as absolutely true, but also troublesome, maybe you could even argue like this is the entire problem, is that sex cannot be rationally explained as special, as something Mm -hmm. different than shaking your hands. But as you said, everyone, whether they say so or not, acknowledges that it is in their repulsion to something like rape, or I would say the vast majority of people, they would not say that there should be the same punishment for someone coming up and slapping you on the face versus someone raping you. They know that Mm -hmm. there is a difference, even if they say something ridiculous, like sex work is work, and it doesn't matter Mm -hmm. how many sexual partners that you have, it's just liberating and great. They understand that sex is different than, you know, your normal interaction, negative or positive. Um, it really can't be explained, though, why that is, as you like kind of briefly touched on, you said without talking about like the mental and emotional, the feeling part of it. But of course, from my perspective, I'm saying, no, it's a spiritual, it's the spiritual part of it that I would argue it is because there is something deep and almost intangible in all of us because we are made in God's image, because he made us male and female, because he made us. Uh, for the kind of sexual intimacy that is only really practiced in a healthy and productive and fruitful way in the boundaries of monogamous marriage, that is why somehow innately we know and have suppressed through our sexual, you know, revolution mores, we have suppressed what I believe God placed in all of us, that we understand that sex is special, that sex is for commitment, it is for covenant, that it is um, it is a reflection of something much bigger and much deeper and much more eternal than we can actually give word to. And I think our disgust, even the secular person's disgust of things like rape and things like pedophilia, I think it speaks to how God made us, that God placed something in us. And so as you already mentioned, even from a secular perspective, if post-1960s is a backlash against Christian morality, specifically Christian sexual morality, then of course it would make sense that our thoughts about sex have gone in the direction that it has because Christianity, as you mentioned, for the last 2000 years, totally disrupted the pagan Roman world and how they viewed sex also as just something that you do. People Mm -hmm. are just people that you use, children doesn't matter. Um, Christianity's disrupted that. And now that we have kind of rejected it, we're going back to the pagan era and how they viewed bodies and how they viewed sex. So anyway, I just kind of wanted to give my Christian perspective on that, but I'm curious just kind of what you think about that. I mean, yeah, I I think that the, yeah, I don't think it it can be underestimated quite how, like, appalling um, sexual ethics were in antiquity, right? And if you're looking at the the first century Christian introduction of the new kind of sexual ethics, um, they are radically transformative. And I think that is really worth bearing in mind um, when thinking about modern feminism, which is often 
which is often set up as being in direct opposition to 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 Christianity and to other kind and, and to other religious traditions too, but particularly like in an American and British context, we're primarily talking about Christianity. Um, and I think that's a mistake because I think I mean there are a lot of different strains of feminism, and clearly there are um, all sorts of internal discussions within feminism which are you know worth having. But you know when it comes down to it, a lot of basic feminist ideals which I think basically everyone can can agree with regardless of whether or not they call themselves feminists you know the idea that women's um women's interests ought to be protected um that women's emotional lives matter that women's distress matters you know all this kind of stuff um which is not taken as read in say the Roman world right um those ideas about equality and the protection of the weak and so on are originally Christian ideas, even if they're now somewhat divorced from the actual theology. And I think it is an error to see um, feminism and Christianity as a necessarily an opposition, even if there might be points of debate, as there always have been, you know, across across the last 2,000 years, there have always been internal disputes and so forth. Um, I think it is a terrible error of feminists, some feminists, to think that tearing down um, the old sexual morality would necessarily lead to women's women's lives improving in any way, because actually there are a lot of alternative systems of sexual ethics to the Christian ones, and a lot of them are a hell of a lot worse than what prevailed until recently in our society. You know, I, I one of the arguments I make in in favour of marriage. You know, writing for a secular audience who are who are not who are not necessarily going to be persuaded by the by the religious arguments, right? But I say, look, if we look at this rationally and we look at the data, there's a lot of data on this. Polygamous systems are much worse for women and children than our monogamous systems of marriage, right? Polygamous systems are in some sense our kind of natural state. Um, most societies on the anthropological record have been polygynous, so permitting men to take multiple wives. Um, our closest primate ancestors are also polygynous. This this seems to be to some extent our default that we drift towards. And actually you'll see on things like dating apps, which has offers like a wealth of, of data on this, you will see that left to our own devices without that kind of monogamous restriction coming externally, people do tend to drift back towards a kind of polygynous system where you have the high status men accumulating lots of wives, girlfriends, um, and low status men having none at all. The problem with that kind of um, society is it tends to produce a lot more um, domestic violence because households with lots of co-wives tend to produce a lot of conflict, um, a lot more child abuse, um, more crime, because you have this mass of unmarried men who are um, frustrated and don't have any reason really to tame themselves, because that's 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 very often what marriage and having children does to men. It, it, it I mean, it literally, we can measure it. It reduces testosterone in men um, when they have a child at home and they're involved in that child's care. Their testosterone in a good levels way. drop in a good way. Yeah, and that it's a it's a it's a softening of kind of um, male aggression, particularly youthful yeah. male aggression. Whereas in a monogamous system, um, crime rates drop, domestic violence rates drop, child abuse drops. You know, it's in some sense not a natural system because it's not the one that we kind of tend to do towards by default. And it, it is 
the, the group of people that it places real restrictions on are the high status men, right, who want to take on multiple wives if they have the opportunity to. It's why anthropologists call this the um, the puzzle of monogamous marriage, why monogamous marriage would have been ever become as successful as it has um, and as widespread as it is nowadays. Um, and the answer is that, yes, it it restricts the high status men who are, norm, you know, in general setting the terms. But it has so many other benefits for a society that it tends to produce stable societies which mm. survive and expand. So I think that you can end up through the more kind of rational data driven arguments at some of the same conclusions that have been reached by um, old religious traditions, with the exception, as you say, I think of of the of the the argument against sexual disenchantment, which really does come down to emotion. But then, you know, we we are we are human animals, right? In the sense that we are we are we are driven by our emotions, and I think to say that we should be kind of I think that a lot of what a lot of the reason that young women are experiencing a lot of distress in a culture of casual sex and porn and all that, you know, all the stuff that I'm describing is because what they're being asked to do is basically suppress their instincts, mm -hmm. their, their instincts towards wanting to have emotional attachment in sexual relationships, towards feeling um, anxious about being with men that they don't know. Um, all of the kind of red flags which instinctively crop up, that feeling of disgust and fear, you know, these are very, very deeply ingrained instincts in us. And they're there for a reason that, that you know, they are self-protective. And one of the things that I reject about um, sex positive feminism is even though in theory it's supposed to be all about kind of um, promoting people's sexual well-being and so on. What I think it does in practice is it actually... Um, encourages women in particular to ignore their instincts and to try and retrain themselves to be more like men to have sex like men to see this as a liberatory goal rather than saying no female sexuality is actually fine <laughs> as it is right it's actually good to 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 you know to want to to combine love with sex it's it's good to want to commit to one person and so on these are not bad instincts that women should be trained out of one of the phrases that i i hate so much that is um has become popular this century and you see it in the media and so on is catching feelings the idea that if you're having a sexual relationship with someone and you start feeling emotional attachment this is some sort of disease that you've caught right. that you need to be avoiding and you get these horrific guides in women's mags and so on um advising um, I mean, it's it's presented in a gender neutral way, but we all know what's really going on, right? They're advising young women who find themselves in a, a culture of casual sex, don't like it, are, are feeling unhappy, but also feel as though this is compulsory. They have to go through this. Um, it will advising them things like don't make eye contact with your sexual partner, um, take drugs before you have sex to soften your, your emotional responses, all this kind of you know. The, encouraging these women to emotionally mutilate themselves and my question is for what purpose right, right. to serve to serve the male libido basically i think is is what it comes down to i don't think this is serving women's interests in the least Okay, second sponsor for the day is Raycon. If you are looking for wireless earbuds, 
at a fraction of the price of competitors, you need to check out Raycon. Raycon's everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. They've got optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit. They've got all different kinds of sizes so you can make sure that it's truly comfortable for you and they will not budge once you find the size that works for you. When you order these earbuds, they come with all different kinds of sizes of gel tips. So you just pick the one that you want. You don't have to pay extra for that. And they work really well. I have gifted Raycons to a ton of my friends who are runners, trail runners, do all different kinds of activities outside, and they swear by these things. They love them. They've got a 32-hour battery life, eight hours of playtime, And like I said, they are about half the price of other premium audio brands. So go to buy Raycon, that's B-U-Y, Raycon.com slash Allie for 15% off your Raycon order. That's buy Raycon.com slash Allie for 15% off, buy Raycon.com slash Allie. I've heard from a lot of young women, in particular, those who call themselves detransitioners. This seems to be a common theme in their backgrounds, in the stories that I have read and also the ones that I've personally spoken to, is that especially those who are young, like, you know, 10 years younger than me. And so they really grew up coming of age during the social media era. And they felt as young women very over-sexualized and felt a pressure at a very young age to be sexual, not just sexually active, but dress sexually, talk sexually, Mm -hmm. dance sexually on social media, send pictures to boys. And I'm sure that pressure to some extent has always been there for young women to try to perform in some way to gain the satisfaction and approval of young men. But with social media and just kind of our media and pop culture as it is, it seems like the pressure is stronger, more ubiquitous. And so a lot of these women, what I find interesting, who transitioned so-called into being a man, a common theme that I find is that they were uncomfortable as a 12, 13-year-old with the pressure to be sexual, with always feeling like a sexual object, feeling like prey, and Mm -hmm. feeling vulnerable because of that and felt that if they transitioned or they started being more masculine, then that made them less vulnerable. There was less pressure. And it's sad because, I mean, puberty involves a lot of discomfort for girls and always and and boys and always has. And so, of course, sexuality and the discovery of all of that at teenage years is already awkward and difficult. But it seems like objectification and the sexualization of young people, especially young girls, is more. It's bigger than it has been before. I don't think it's just leading to confusion about gender and that kind of thing, I think it's leading to a lot of, as you said, disenchantment, self-hatred, self-resentment, just a lot of confusion about what sex is supposed to be, what the body is, who they are, how the mind and the heart and the body all work together and how it's supposed to. Is that something that you've seen? What do you think about that? I completely agree that that must be a motivation of, well, I mean, so many detransitioners say that it was a very explicit motivation. They were, that, that you know, it's always alarming to some degree to come to, to, to encounter puberty and suddenly inhabit the body of a, a woman and having to negotiate right. sexual interests and so on, always difficult. But doing so in a hyper-sexualized culture, 
super pornified, you know, with the expectation that you've got you've got young boys in particular, but young girls too, being exposed to porn from really young ages. We're giving children smartphones into which, um, you know, these multi-billion dollar global corporations are beaming the most extraordinarily violent, aggressive, horrible sexual images, right, which they're going to be exposed to from a really young age. I mean, one of the things I write about in one chapter on BDSM is the the extent to which just the sexual script has become so much more aggressive, mm. right? Just things like the one survey in the UK, which found that half of um, young women in the UK age 18 to 24 had been choked by a partner during sex. This was not considered to be a normal part of sex, even no. t- 10 years ago, 20 years right. ago. This was like a, a weird niche thing that, that most people would never even would never even occur to them to do now but but now we have every porn platform in the world has choking images on the front page this is completely mainstream you can even expect to see it on, on instagram or facebook and all these platforms that are supposed to be appropriate for for adolescents no wonder you have some of these girls you know arriving in this kind of sexual culture and saying oh, i i want out and one way That's of scary. getting out is to not identify as a woman anymore or to do things like identify as asexual or demisexual. Demisexual right. makes me laugh a little bit because what demisexual um, is defined as is basically when you you only want to have sex with someone who you're emotionally attached to. And this is, this is presented as being um, a kind of weird and wonderful special identity under you're the... Right. Right. Whatever. And I was like, no, this is just normal female sexuality yeah. <laughs> that you're describing right. and creating a new term. I mean, I kind of... I sort of have some respect for girls in the sense of, you know, having having the confidence almost to almost to assert this, you know, this is my identity. Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, is good. You know, better to identify as demisexual than to than to kind of go along with the mainstream against your instincts. But equally, you shouldn't have to be a, coming up with some sort of special identity that permits you to opt out of a culture that is really not geared towards women's interests. Yeah. Um, I, you've written about this before. As all of the different barriers, all of the different mores, restrictions, traditions around sexuality that, as we've talked about, are rooted in Christianity, even if they have become separated from Christian theology, as all of those are knocked down in the name of liberation, in the name of... I don't know, self-discovery and self-fulfillment. I really see a huge crossover between the like trendy narcissistic self-love culture and all the sexual revolution. There seems to just be a lot in common there. As all of those, all of those restrictions are knocked down, do you see the normalization of something like pedophilia on the horizon? Or do you think that's just a slippery slope argument that you know, Christian conservatives are putting out there to try to scare people about LGBTQ people. I think it's hard for those principles not to end up as a paedophilia apologism eventually. And this has happened post-sexual revolution and has to some extent been memory holds. You have in, say, the 1970s, a push among all sorts of very, very prominent um, postmodern theorists like Foucault yep. and it, signing... Yes. 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 
signing petitions, you know, for the decriminalisation of paedophilia, writing very explicitly in defence of it. And what they said, and it's important to remember this, is that they didn't say that it was okay to violently assault children. What they said was that the consent principle stood, you know, consent was important, and that some children were capable of consenting to sex with adults. And I think this is the this is the problem with the consent framework because actually it, it it's op- it is open to um to manipulation the fact that we've set the legal bar at 16 in the UK you know other similar kind of thresholds across the world is to some extent arbitrary we know that you know a 15 year old on the night before her 16th birthday is not radically different from how she is the next day. We have to draw a line in the sand legally and say this is the point at which you can consent to sex. And we know historically that that line has been set at very different points, you know, sometimes really very young. Um, The argument from from some of the sexual revolutionaries was just that we should nudge it a little lower and it was still completely in keeping with, with with their principles of protecting consent. And it becomes, you know, there are all sorts of examples um, like, for instance, um, pornography with adults pretending to be children or yes. making themselves look more like that's children. That's a trend. I mean, that's a trend even on yeah. TikTok. I yeah. just saw something um, that uh, there's like this trend of like older girls wearing um, like pigtails to get more tips because they look, yeah, yeah they look younger. Yeah. There's also, and this, I don't want to take us, you know, off of what we're talking about, but just so I don't forget something I've noticed with a lot of men who say that they identify as women is that at least the ones that I'm seeing, you know, online is that they don't dress up like women. They often dress up as little girls. Like there is this one TikToker, I think his name is, uh, Dylan that he is he's talking about oh this is day whatever of being a girl and literally dressed I mean this is a man and he's dressed like a child like he's dressed like a 12 year old and this is apparently just acceptable we're all supposed to celebrate this I mean it's hard for me not to see the writing on the wall it's already getting blurry right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I other example would be um like virtual reality porn or cartoon porn or whatever that's designed to look like child porn but it doesn't actually use children in its production so it's not directly harming any children um or something like cuties you remember the netflix show um a couple of years ago which was supposedly you know the defense from the creators was that it was about actually critiquing the sexualization of children and you know the plot in the end um sees the protagonist rejecting the kind of hypersexualization. But it also featured a lot of hypersexualization of real children who actually were really young and looked obviously very young. And this is the sort of thing where within the consent framework, what do you say? You know, it's, if an adult wants to put braces and pigtails on and create porn and if an ad, another adult wants to wants to consume it or pay for it, you can't really challenge that within the consent framework at all. And yet... The vast majority of us feel an instinctive revulsion and know that there's something off about that. And it's very hard to to explain that feeling if all that you've got to rely on is the consent framework. Whereas if you if you're interested in virtue, you know, if you, if you say that actually there are certain um 
there are certain virtues on which our sexual ethics should be based. And one of those includes um, the protection of the vulnerable and the recognition that actually any kind of sexual attraction to children is wrong and should be repressed. And if and if anyone sort of discovers it in, discovers it in themselves, it is they are they are obliged to repress those instincts because they're not they're not virtuous. You know, these are the kind of arguments that I think most people do instinctively feel drawn towards, but which the new kind of ethical framework just cannot possibly accommodate which is why i think we end up inevitably with pedophilia apologism and have done since the 1960s at various points and i fear we we are slipping back towards that again all right it's that time again i gotta tell you about good ranchers if you've been listening to me talk about good ranchers for the past i don't know year and a half and you have not ordered your meat from them yet what are you doing why do you want to go to the grocery store and spend 20 minutes trying to pick out the right cut of steak the right quality of meat trying to make sure that it's you know organic or craft beef or where it's from you don't have to worry about that if you order your meat from good ranchers All of their beef, their chicken, and their seafood is from American farms and ranches and is super high quality, sustainably sourced, ethically raised. Also, whatever you pay right now for your subscription, it will lock in for the rest of your subscription. And so when you go to the grocery store, you have to worry about inflation. You don't have to worry about that with Good Ranchers. Plus, if you use my code Allie at checkout, you get $30 off plus free shipping. So go to goodranchers.com slash Allie for that $30 off plus free shipping and to lock in the price of your subscription today. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie, goodranchers.com slash Allie. I agree with you that it is the natural consequence of, again, kind of a backlash to Christianity. Of course, from my vantage point, I'm like, all of this is a rejection of what was kind of the dominant philosophy, which was Christian theology. There's a fascinating book about the invention of children and how Christianity really invented children as a protected category, which again, as we've already kind of mentioned in the pagan world in which Christianity was birthed, there was no idea of children being a protected class. They not only could be used for all kinds of labor, but also for sexual exploitation. Really, the the person who stood in the center of society was the adult free male. Everyone else kind of was free for subjugation. Then Christianity universalized this Old Testament idea that, hang on, all people have souls. All people are made in the image of God. There is a consequence for rape. There's a consequence for murder. There's a consequence for abuse. And then also brought in the gospel, which said, okay, everyone is dead in sin apart from Christ. Everyone is alive in Christ by grace through faith in him. That is a radical equality of worth that the gospel of Jesus Christ brought into the pagan world. And that is what revolutionized the West. Still today, in the non-Christian world, there is nothing perverse. Uh, They see nothing perverse in marrying a child. Still today, probably in a large portion of the world, in the non-Christian world, it has never been seen as any kind of paraphilia, any kind of predation. It is because of Christianity and the spread of Christian virtues that we have a rightful revulsion 
to pedophilia. That's not a universal value today. So to me, this is just another consequence, um, inevitable consequence of rejecting Christian theology. I don't think we even realize, none of us, Christian or not, realize what is on the other side of a fully post-Christian world. I mean, I think history tells us that. I don't think, though, we in the West who take for granted all of those traditions and all of those um, moral principles, I don't think that we can even begin to recognize what that's going to look like. Yeah. I wrote um, an article for uh, Compact Magazine a few weeks ago about, um, you know, Andrew Tate, have you come across him? I, I just recently discovered who he was, like in the past few weeks, I <laughs> didn't even know. all of us, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, me too. Um, but he is apparently a, a phenomenon. Anyone who's not familiar, he's a, he's a British-American kickboxer um, who uh, has, has become a bit of a TikTok star. And he is, um, I think he is a really good reminder of the fact that, um, just because he is opposed to Christian sexual morality does not mean by any means that he is feminist. You know, that that dichotomy is completely false because what Tate is invested in, in his own personal morality, is basically consumption, display, um, you know, being, he's hugely status driven. He loves his like fancy watches, cars, whatever. This is what he lives for. And he sees women as being consumables in exactly the same way. And he has said that he wants to have, he wants to have multiple partners, you know, children, but by as many women as he possibly can. He's completely un unconcerned with the idea of um, monogamous marriage. And of course, he he can now do that. I mean, we don't actually legally permit polygamy, but in practice, um, you can live in a, in a polygamous way with absolutely no restriction in a legal sense and, and, and very little social censure either. So he is, he's able to basically live the life of a kind of, you know, high-class Roman male who, and in, in the Roman world, absolutely no one would have judged him for it at all. You know, Harvey Weinstein is completely unremarkable in a world that doesn't recognize the, 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 the violation of, um, the bodies of women and children, particularly low-class women and children, Epstein. matters. Yeah, Jeffrey Epstein the is a, is a for uh, looking at all of history, his behavior and what he did for most of history in most places in the world would not have been seen as problematic. Yeah, completely typical. And obviously, it has also you know within the Christian world there have been many Jeffrey Epstein's. Um, but I think the point is that they're not. It is possible to critique them within a within a sexual morality which says that actually the sexual exploitation of of the weak is wrong and that high status men should not automatically assume that they have sexual access to their social inferiors right that is a radical thing to say and it remains a radical thing to say and i think that actually you know in many ways um feminists and christians are on the same page about that even if we even if we don't always recognize that fact well, there's certainly a lot of things and I've realized since the revolution has come for the dichotomy of male and female and has decided to try to kind of like obliterate that, which you talk about in your book. But I realized, you know, there's a lot that I end up linking, you know, I link arms with a lot of feminists on what I would say, because I understand certainly from a secular perspective, why you look at history and you look at the plight of women and you say feminism is necessary and has accomplished good things. Again, from my vantage point, kind of like what I would say is just as 
Christianity revolutionized the idea and the perspective of children. So it also uh, revolutionized the perspective on women, not just through the gospel and that kind of radical equality that it brings as like sinners and saints, but also like if you look at a passage like Ephesians 5, which a lot of people who identify as Christian feminists today hate because it says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And of course, we're like, oh my goodness, submission. But I think the radical part of that or what would have been considered a radical part of that, which was not normal for the culture at the time, is when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And basically he goes on to say, just as Christ sacrificed himself for you, so sacrifice yourself for your wife. Talks about monogamy, the importance of being a husband of just one wife, of not provoking your children to anger, but caring for them. That all, not the submission to your husband part, that probably wouldn't have been radical at the time. The radical part was husbands. You're not free to do whatever you want to do. You're not free to sow your wild oats. You are to be monogamous. You are to care and compassion for your wife and for your children. Again, and I think like that perspective on women as people to be cared for, people whose interests actually matter, who have a soul, who aren't just bodies, who aren't just bearing children, although that, of course, is so important. Like, again, a Christian idea and ideal that over time really changed how society saw women. I see feminism, in my in my opinion, as getting more wrong than right and actually helping create someone like Andrew Tate because feminism told women that, hey, like, just get on birth control and do whatever you want with your body and that is liberation, and that is good, and that is virtuous, and that is great. All you need is sexual satisfaction, just like a man mm. can get. I mean, people like Andrew Tate are loving that side of feminism. So, like, yeah. to me, that kind of created the issue. I think that the error that liberal feminism made, bearing in mind that there have always been different strains, right? But liberal feminism is, is by far, I'd say, the most dominant now. It's kind of the, the, the girl boss feminism, the whatever. You know, this is what we see in, in Cosmo and whatever. The error that liberal feminism makes is that it assumes that freedom is the most important goal, that it is the preeminent virtue mm. and that all other virtues need to fall by the wayside. And so, of course, you know, you say, well, men have always had the freedom to behave like libertines. Why shouldn't women have that freedom to why shouldn't women have the freedom to participate in public life in the same way that men do? You know, all of this. And 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 it's it's true up to a point. But the problem is that the kind of radical freedom project um, doesn't work when we come up against the, the the brick wall of biological difference and the fact that there is a there is sexual asymmetry that is never going to go away. The fact that women are the ones who get pregnant, women's we we are much smaller and weaker, and more physically vulnerable than men are. We have all these psychological differences, like the fact that male and female sexuality is on average, quite distinct. Um, that's not going anywhere. And I think that what we've seen um, and that, you know, the negative consequences of the sexual revolution that have, have played out now, you know, we've done the experiment. What happens if you tear, if you tear it all down and try and start from, from scratch again? Well, we've seen it. Um, what happens is that um, you throw freedom at a society, I think, in denial about the existence of sexual asymmetry that is tries very hard. I mean, even in the most recent iteration, tries to deny the existence of men and women as such. I think that we cannot possibly cope 
with the, this new kind of free-for-all, given given the existence of sexual asymmetry and given that, um, I mean, this is the sort of thing that anyone with, you know, anyone on the left who has a has any kind of critique of capitalism will recognise this when it comes to free markets and will say, well, if you just, you know, throw freedom, <laughs> right, like remove all, say, um, labour restrictions or, you know, any anything, any kind of... Um, effort on imposing structure and control on a system and just kind of have at it, anyone on the left will say, well, no, because there's not an even playing field, right? There are, there are, there are the rich bosses, there are their poor workers. If you say, as you know, remove the obligation to honour the Sabbath, to give one example, of course you're going to end up with poor workers then having to work seven days a week and being, um, you know, miserably exploited. And of course, the bosses are going to profit from that, you know, and I feel like we've done the same thing when it comes to the sexual marketplace, that we've basically imposed a kind of free market ideology and said everyone should be free without recognising the fact that there are inherent inequalities, which mean that different people will experience that freedom differently. The phrase I use in the book is um, freedom for the pike is death for the minnows. All right. One of my all-time favorite companies because I love their products so much, and that is Adele Natural Cosmetics. I am wearing their um, I'm wearing their moisturizer. I'm wearing their foundation and their cream blush and their lipstick right now. I just love this company, and I love the family that runs the company. They're Christians. They're pro-life. They've got the same values that you and I do, so you can feel really good about sending your money to them. Plus, I truly love their products. They're all natural, they're holistic, they're handcrafted in the U.S. I think personally, if I do say so myself, that my skin looks and feels better than it ever has because I am using Adele Natural Cosmetics. Love them so much. Highly recommend them. Go to AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. Enter promo code Allie for 25% off your first order. That's AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. Enter promo code Allie for 25% off your first order. AdeleNaturalCosmetics.com. It just doesn't seem like it has delivered on its promises. Not, I mean, sure, maybe liberation. If liberation is you can just do whatever you want. If liberation and libertinism are the same thing, which, I mean, you could argue for or against that. But it doesn't seem like it's led to satisfaction. I mean, aren't we more, especially young girls, it seems more depressed than ever, more anxious than ever, even more suicidal than ever. And there are a lot of different factors, I think, um, that play into that. I mean, in an age when we are constantly told, I mean, young women especially are berated on social media with just love yourself, just love yourself, just love yourself, just discover yourself. You are your own truth. You're enough for yourself. You would think that in an age where that kind of message is primary for women, that we would be happier if that were the solution. If the solution was just do what makes you happy and do what feels good, don't care about, you know, standards or rules or restrictions, just be authentically you to 24-7, no matter what that means, no matter how much that might hurt you and hurt other people, if that were the way to go, it seems like we would be a lot happier right now, but actually it seems like we're a lot more depressed than we've ever been. So at what point do people realize, okay, we need to like, it needs to swing back in the other direction. We need some kind of like exit strategy here. This ain't working. We need to turn around a little bit. Like, do you do you see that happening, or do you think like we're just headed towards rock bottom? I think it is starting to happen. 
I mean, I think it's a bit of a complicated picture because you've got um, and among Gen Z, for instance, you've got a combination of some members of Gen Z who are really into the sex positive stuff. And then you've also got some who are who are, I think, reacting against it. And there is a bit of a sexual counter revolution brewing. Um, it's not always happening in the way that you might want or the way you might expect. So, for instance, there are a lot of young men who are reacting against porn and who are swearing off using porn at all. They generally are not doing so out of any kind of ethical motivation at all, you know, in terms of concerned about the women who are involved in its production or whatever. They're normally doing it because of they recognize the fact that porn is really destructive for the consumer Mm -hmm. and it tends to have really negative impact on your own, your mind, your sexuality. Think, you know, problems like erectile dysfunction are very, very common um, for for, for men who are using porn frequently. So normally it's coming out of a more sort of self-interested instinct, but it's happening. It's all connected though. I mean, it's all connected when something is like bad for society, it tends to be bad for the individual and vice versa. Um, And so to me, it just is another, like, it's another piece of evidence, as you kind of have argued, even from a secular perspective, that the like mind and the heart and the soul and the body are connected. It causes sexual Mm -hmm. dysfunction, not just because it's bad for you physically, but also because it's bad for your mind. It's bad for women. It's bad for society and families and children in general. Um, So yeah, I mean, it might be self-interested, but as you said, the consequences are good of that kind of self-control. Yeah, yeah. And young women, many of them are coming to the same kind of conclusions as well. You go on TikTok, you know, Twitter, wherever, it's really easy to come across young women who are saying exactly these things, that the sexual revolution was a was a con, basically. Um, I mean, some of them are reacting, as we discussed earlier, by doing things like identifying as as trans or as non-binary or demisexuals or whatever it might be. So they're trying to kind of react against it within the, the, the liberal framework. Yeah. Um, Others are um, just for swearing sexual relationships at all, um, like fem cells as the counterpart to incels is, mm. is a growing on- online phenomenon, women who are basically swearing to celibacy because they don't want to participate in this culture. Um, but then, I mean, the point that I make in the book is that actually there is also a lot to be learned from my, my last chapter is called Listen to Your Mother, where I argue that actually some of the old sexual norms were there for a reason and actually there is a lot to be that we can learn from them in a critical way um things like marriage you know things like recognizing that actually um men and women have got to get along (laughs) right if we're going to have a future and that you know we very often do men and women have 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 loving you know most people, their most important loving relationship in their lives is a member of the opposite sex, you know, most straight people. Um, we are perfectly capable of having these loving relationships. The problem is that we don't have the cultural structure in place that encourages their creation and their and their perseverance. But we, we could, you know, these things do, the, this option does remain available still. We can still choose to be countercultural. And to it, and to adopt some of the old ideas, which actually had a lot of wisdom to them. So that's that's the advice I end up giving readers yeah. by the end of the book. Wow. Well, this was fascinating, and I've loved following you, and I just appreciate your perspective, even though it, we're coming from different places. That's kind of what I appreciate about it is because you're not coming from necessarily my same theological point, which is what makes it 
So interesting. Um, So thank you so much for writing this book, for taking the time to come on. I hope that everyone goes out and buys it. Um, Where can people buy it? How can they support you, follow you? So it it was literally published in the US yesterday. Oh, <laughs> it's been really? out in the oh, UK. this is perfect timing. Yeah. I don't think I even yeah. realized that. Okay, awesome. Um, it's been out in the UK for a few months, and it's had a it's it's made quite a big splash in, Good. in the UK. Good. Um, but yeah, so it's now available in the US in in all good bookshops. I hope and assume. Um, yes. And okay. otherwise, um, I'm on Twitter at, um, at Louise underscore M underscore Perry. Awesome. Well, thank thank you so much, Louise. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. I know people are going to love this. And again, just encourage people to go out and get your book. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care.